All right, we're at the end of chapter 38. I've got to pick up the pace because I've only got two weeks left of this class before Jake takes over teaching, and I've got to get finished. Uh, so we're in the Lord's first speech, but we're in kind of the second half of this speech, and it starts with 38, 39, and we're changing themes. We've, we've done a lot of weather themes and uh, nature, uh, the invisible realm, the heavens. And now God's speech is going to come to uh, the theme of animals. He's going to talk about the animal kingdom a little bit. And a couple reminders that are important. The first is, remember the question that he's answering. Do we live in a well-run world? (laughs) Job's accusation throughout the book is is that this world, because of what's happening to Job, is not well run, that he has these tips he could offer God on how God ought to run his universe, and now God is showing him uh, the, the reality of the situation. The second thing to remember is that both things are true, as we've been saying for weeks. Yes, it is true that one aspect of the speech is this relentless, overwhelming rhetorical questions where Job is just left in silence. He doesn't have answers for these things. He cannot uh, go toe-to-toe with God in this wrestling match of justice as he had hoped. And also true, the individual questions matter. God is making a point about these things. So we talked about that with the heavenlies and the stars and with water and the rain and how it's also storms. And God brings not just rain, to water your plants, but he also brings rain to flood your basement. The same God is the God of both of those rains. And that's been one of the points that he's making too. And the same thing is going to be true here in the second half of the speech. We're going to get past the inanimate created order and we're going to get to the create the, the animal kingdom. And all of this is about God graciously bringing Job to a better understanding of his own sin. And his sin was self-righteousness. His sin is haughtiness and pride toward God that had not come out until Job didn't like the way God was running the world. Job's view of God, everything Job said about God, Job's behavior toward God was very good when Job liked the way God ran the world. And then as soon as God starts doing things, granted, very extreme things. But as soon as God starts doing things that Job does not like, uh, now suddenly God can't be trusted. This is not a well-run world. We we have to to make a change. So animals and birds are the motifs here. So let's start with uh, Stephen. Can you read 38? Start in 39 and go, uh, go all the way to eight. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of, of the the calving of the dude I wanted to say dudes, I'm sorry. <laughs> that happened to me last week. <laughs> Do you observe the calving of the does? Can the number 
can, can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. So, uh, stop there. Sorry. Yep. Um, two motifs are going to appear that Ash identifies all throughout this speech in the different little vignettes or pericopes that come along the way. One of them is the, the wildness of it all. The types of animals that he's going to name and sort of work through are wild creatures. These are not tame. These are not domesticated creatures. And the key to that is these are creatures who are not under human control. It's not like Job... God is asking Job, do you train your dog well? Well, Job can train a dog well, theoretically. Uh, It's about the animals that Job will recognize are not under his control. They don't do anything because Job has trained them or domesticated them. And yet we're going to find out that God is as in control of the wild animals as he is in control of his people, his domesticated ones, everything else in his universe. And then the second motif where Stephen left off is going to be a motif of life and death, this theme of uh, the, the, the polarities, the, the ends of the spectrum, where on one end is birth, uh, and then sustenance is keeping things alive, and then decay, and then death. And you're going to see points along that spectrum all throughout these speeches. And the point of that is going to be that they're all connected that, that uh, it's not possible for us to conceive of life as we know it with one of these but not the other. The poles in this world are inextricably tied, life and death. So he starts with animals and birds, and he starts with the concept of predators and prey, and that's actually going to be the bookends of this part of the speech. So what Stephen read in 38-39 is about predators and prey, and then at the end of this speech, at the end of chapter 39, he's going to come back to exactly the same uh, theme with the hawk being the predator and then the prey. And so that's, that's sort of our, our bookends. And, you know, you, it's... it's uh, It's pretty dramatic. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? They crouch in their dens, lie wait in their thicket. Look at the end of 39. It's even, uh, it's even grosser in a way. Is it by your understanding that the hawks, this verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wing towards the south? The eagle mounts up, makes its nest on high. Uh, from there, he spies out the prey. His young ones suck up blood, and where they are slain, uh, where the slain are, there he is. So the predator and prey that the hawk goes off and gets the prey, shreds it to bits, and feeds it and its blood to its little ones. It's it's very graphic uh, uh, language about this death, and the the question is. <laughs> Uh, how does that make you feel? Ash uses the, the analogy or, or asks you to consider nature documentaries. 
And, and you can imagine a, a moment where the camera is trained in on the nest of the little lion cubs. And, oh, look how cute. And they're fluffy. And, they're, and, and, and there's the beautiful gazelle moving out across the field. And it's beauty and it's life and it's vigor. And then Mama Lion tears the thing to shreds, drives its carcass back to the den, rips it into pieces and feeds it to the little ones. How do you feel about that connection? The hawk in, in its majesty flying above with this nest surveying the land around it. And these, and these little hawks in the nest and they're cute. And, they're, and, and, and then Mama Hawk comes down and destroys hopefully the possum in our backyard and grabs it and tears it to shreds. And it says its young one drink its blood. And, and the point of this is for us to wrestle with how we feel about that. You you can't find it completely wonderful because we all made gross faces when I talked about shredding the animal and having its blood, right? Then there's death. The gazelle had to die. And like, you can't feel completely wonderful about the whole thing, but you also can't feel completely repulsed by the whole thing, can you? The sustenance is how these lion cubs are going to grow, and they are beautiful and, and impressive, uh, and, and, and that sort of interweaving. So this is what Ash says. There's a tension that cannot be reconciled in a world of food chains or of predator and prey. Uh, if the beauty of lions is to be unspoiled and the helplessness of the raven chicks, oh, sorry, if the beauty of the gazelle is to be unspoiled, then the beauty of the lions and the helplessness of the raven chicks will end in starvation and death. The gazelle had to die so that they could live. In our world, if the lion were to lie down with the lamb, there would be a lot of starving lion cubs. We live in a world in which predation and starvation are the only alternatives. We may be shocked, but God says to Job that he himself is the one who hunts the prey for the lion who satisfies the appetite of the lion comes, cubs and who provides for the young ravens the prey they need to live. When the gazelle is torn limb from limb, the text says it is the answer, metaphorically, to the prayer. They're crying out for help. And so it is possible in the counsel of God that this age is so ordered that suffering for some is necessary for the survival of others. That's, that's the point. That's why he starts with this predator and prey. He's going to talk about a lot of things in the middle, the life and death part. But seeing that connectedness, we want all the good things and none of the bad. This world is not ordered so that that's how it works. And you have this this analogy that you can see in the animal kingdom. And so God, uh, God has ordered and purposed things in such a way that there is a time for everything. Remember Ecclesiastes? There's a time to sing and dance, and there's a time to mourn, and there's a time to live, and there's a time to die. And part of the wisdom of the wisdom literature is trying to bring us to the realization that 
God, the architect of this age, is not caught by surprise. He's not responding to things he didn't expect. He's not so enamored with our freedom that he just allows some of these things to be. Those things are as purposeful as the things that you are quite willing to attribute to God. God fed the lion cub. And we all go, yeah, yeah, God provides their meat in due season. Yeah, which means God killed the gazelle. Oh, I don't know about all that. that that's the tension that, that God is inviting Job to understand. So then the second picture is this, uh, this times, this elusive point that there's a time. And he, he calls him back to one specific time, which is when life begins. So Stephen had read uh, 39 and the first four verses with these questions about the beginning of life, when the mountain goats give birth, the calving of the does, uh, when they give birth, when they bring forth their offspring. I mean, this is just such an easy one to, to sort of smile as you imagine Job being asked, Job, can you have anything to do with any of that? <laughs> can, can, can you, can you, uh, can you make life to come forth? Does, does the time of life come because you said life should come forth? Um, it's a time that's beyond Job's knowledge. Now, there's interestingly, there's always an analogy, Scripture uses it, of childbirth with our Christian life because there's this time of waiting and then there's this crisis of pain and then there is the fulfillment of joy and new life. That, that's the, the chain of events in childbirth that is also the chain of events in the Christian life as we await uh, the consummation of all things. So the same God who brings the time of trouble, last chapter, is the God who brings the time of new life in this chapter. And, and one of Job's accusations, you'd have to remember this back, Noah, can you turn back to chapter 7? One through three. And Kate, can you turn back to chapter 14? It's hard to remember what was said 30 chapters ago. But God remembers what Job said to him <laughs> or said about him. Noah, seven, one through three. Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who looks for his wages. So I am a lot of months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned. God is not doing a good job with time. Job is in this time, these months of emptiness. God's not doing good with the time. It's not a well-run universe. Kate, 14, 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. He wants a set time because this time is no good. Job has accused God of not being very good with his time. What should happen now? What should happen next? And God is saying, actually, I'm just fine on the times. Can, can you set the time of life? Can you set the time of conception? Can you set the time of birth? Can you set the time? Job? So again, it's not just, Job, you need to be put in your place. It's Job. There are very specific details about how I run the universe that you seem to be missing. God is the righteous Lord of time. 
Ash says. He is the one who knows, not only with head knowledge, but with personal caring oversight. And then fill in all the blanks from these passages. God knows with caring oversight when the mountain goats give birth, when the calving of the does takes place. He has numbered the months of pregnancy, not just scientifically, mathematically, but in loving care and compassion. These objects, these wild animals are objects of his tender care. And so how much more so with us? You know the problem with what Job is really struggling with here. It's waiting. We all struggle with the waiting. There's whole psalms about the waiting. How long, O Lord, is a struggle with the waiting? I know what you said you will do. I believe that you will do what you said you will do. But what you are doing now is not that. So could we get from here to there quickly, please? That's, that's the constant cry of the human life. And God's answer to Job is that the rhythm of times, which governs the birth cycles, also operates for the rest of his creation. He is as sovereign and operating in his tender care. See, that's, I think, one of our challenges in the reform world that we need to think about with sovereignty is we tend to think in sovereignty terms, and our mind goes to power and control. And that's true. To be sovereign, you must be all-powerful. You must be in complete control. But when God speaks of sovereignty in passages like this, it's loving, tender care. It's, it's that he genuinely knows and does what is best for you, even when you would not do it yourself. It's not just because I said so. It's because this is best. That's a real struggle for us. And I get it because it's hard for us to imagine that Hard things are best. But God isn't just saying arbitrarily, I did what I wanted to do. I didn't care about the effects on you. I'm God. I do what I want. That's not what he's saying here at all. He's saying he provides the food for the raven chicks in their nest. He provides the food for the lion cubs. And he does with his loving, tender, sovereign care what is best for you. And he appoints those times. Questions about that? All right, let's go to the next part. Chapter 39. Nathan, can you read 5 through 8? Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey, to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every people. So the, the donkey's a fun example because he says the wild donkey that goes free. And he, he flat out tells you that, that, that he has no bonds. He's not restrained. The plane is his home. He, he goes where he wants to go. This is a picture of absolute freedom, not restraint. And the, the donkey is, is basically mocking the domesticated creatures for their lack of freedom. That's how free this donkey is. And yet, the freedom is the purposeful gift of God. 
the, 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 the wildness, the freedom, the undomesticated unrestraint is not that somehow he was out of the picture, out of God's sight, and God missed him and forgot to give him an assignment. It is the assignment he was given by God. His choice, this is Ash, his choice, his freedom, and his survival do not in any way compromise the absolute providential control of God over all of life. The, the runnings away are still within God's sight. They're in fact uh, a, a time that he has purposed. That's hard. It's hard to know. And, and two things are true. God is always ready to receive those who come to him in repentance. Always. He says so. And, in a mystery, God appoints times for people's running away. They freely choose to run away. uh, And he has appointed the times. So even, even that freedom is appointed by God. His sovereignty is over the freedom. Again, we're starting to really narrow down. The question is, is it a well-run world? So then the question is, well, what parts of the world are not within God's control? And we're just sort of moving down the list, crossing things off the list. Okay, well, uh, death is actually within God's control. And, you know, the, the gazelle being torn apart on the prairie, yeah, that's, that's we've got to cross that one off because that's God's control. And now we get to, well, yeah, what about the wild donkey? I mean, just completely free, out on the plain, unrestrained. And, yeah, that one's actually in God's control, too. We're going to cross that one off the list, and we'll start to run out of things uh, that are not within God's control. Similar imagery in the next part. Daphne, can you read 9 through 12? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? So to understand this one, you've got to understand the wild ox. Um, In scripture, in the ancient Near East, the wild ox is a terrifying creature. This is not the, you know, cow with a couple of horns out in your, in your neighbor's pasture. This is a terrifying creature. In Psalm 22, when David talks about being rescued in the same sentence, he says from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild ox, like these are scary, scary beasts. Um, So God, who has a sense of humor in his communication with us and uses irony and satire quite well when he needs to, I'm going to read from Ash for a minute. Why not try this? God asks Farmer Job. Go out into the wild and find a wild ox. Walk up to it, pat its head, let it eat some food out of your hand, talk to it, learn to be an ox whisperer, lead it quietly back to the farm to feed overnight at your feeding trough. Then watch as it bows its meek head to let you put a harness on it and willingly plods with strength after you through the fields. The whole thing is absurd and and, and Job would know it. You're not going to try to domesticate a wild ox. You're not going to go near a wild ox on purpose. You are, none of these things are going to happen. And so God is saying, just as the, 
the sort of freedom of the donkey is one category of things that are obviously outside of Job's control. He can't even get to the thing. There are also some things that are outside of Job's control because of their power. They are simply too strong for Job. If you're going to have a well-run world, there cannot be things that are too strong for you. If God could be overthrown, if, if somebody could actually interfere with God's plans, mess up what he wants to do, you wouldn't have a well-run world. <laughs> You'd have a world where God is constantly reacting to the mess that other people make that he wasn't prepared for and has to use all of his might to overcome. In a well-run world, the most powerful things that we can see are under the control of something else, God. And so Job thinks that he could have a well-run world if he were in charge. And God says, well, what about the wild ox? You going to control that? Is, is that going to serve your purposes? You going to pat it on the head and it'll plow your fields for you? And Job should know, and he does know by his response, no, that's not going to happen at all. It takes a wisdom and counsel wider and deeper than Job's to harness the strength of the wild. That wisdom and counsel is God's alone. And this is just yet another example, not simply in the rhetorical overwhelming sense, but in a concrete example of Job, something you cannot control that I do control. And let me continue to build up this list of things you can't control that I do control. And let's reflect back on your question. Is this a well-run world? Then we get one of the most bizarre and delightful examples in all of scripture. <laughs> Matt, will you read 13 through 18? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. Because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding, when she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. The ostrich! We're going to use the ostrich as, uh, as, a, as a proverb. And this is a strange one. But the ostrich is a strange one. It has wings, but it can't fly. <laughs> it lays eggs, but it leaves them on the ground at risk of being crushed by herself or someone else. She went through the labor, the pregnancy, the delivery, so to speak, and then doesn't seem to care if all of that is wasted. Indeed, says Ash, she is a very stupid creature. <laughs> and the reason she is so stupid is that God in his sovereign counsel has made her forget wisdom. It is a creature that God made stupid. I mean, okay, you think about it, it fits the pattern, right? We're making all of the parts of a well-run world that seem to be not so well-run. <laughs> and and Job is, God is saying to Job, you don't control this, you don't control that, you don't control this, you don't control that. And I think we probably would have overlooked it, but God does not overlook. Well, what about the stupid creatures? 
What about the ones that their problem is not that they're too powerful to control or that they're too wild and free to control? What about the ones that are too dumb? And God says, yeah, have you ever noticed the ostrich? I made that. I made that to be that. Um, And she has her own glory before the Lord. She's so fast, was verse uh, 18. She rouses herself to flee. She laughs at the horse and its rider. The, the, The horse spurred on by the rider cannot catch the ostrich. She has her own glory and majesty in the way that God's made her. It's just not in the brains department. God has withheld wisdom from her. (laughs) She is a dumb jock of the animal kingdom. God has made a creature with an amazing burst of speed and a comical lack of common sense. The chickens are so dumb. (laughs) And and what what you have to zoom out and think, we, we... Sometimes we use the word strange to mean bad. When something is strange, it's bad. But don't think of it as bad for a minute. Just think of it as strange. It is a strange world. It is a world with a lot of oddities, a lot of curiosities, a lot of interesting things. And sometimes we look at those things and we think, that's unbelievable. That is amazing that uh, this rock formation looks the way it was, or that, that this spider has a poison sack that's made in such the way that the poison doesn't hurt the spider itself. And then you look and you're like, it's amazing. And then sometimes it's things like, hey, we figured out that if these bats eat these coffee beans and poop them out, the coffee tastes real good. And you're like, what? It is a strange world. Job needs to admit that when he is analyzing this world and accusing it of not being well run. There are things outside of his control. There are things that are too powerful for him. And there are things that he just doesn't understand. There are things that are just genuinely strange. And in God's government of the world, there's a reason for all of it. And God is in control of all of it. Questions about, I hope you don't have questions about the ostrich because I've told you literally everything I understand about that passage. That is one of the most confusing passages. I mean, does any of this relate to the category of humans as far as... It, it's tough. It's not like he's making analogies for humans. So it's not like he's saying, like the dumb jocks example, it's not like he's saying you you shouldn't be so haughty about stupid people because God gave them a purpose too. That's not the point of this. The point of this is the categories of things in the world that are beyond our control and sometimes beyond our understanding. And some of those things you look at and say majestic. And some of those things you look at and say, that bird's an idiot. But it's all within God's purposeful design, understanding, and control. And so we have to be really cautious before we tell God, you shouldn't have made the ostrich. We've got to be really cautious before we tell God, it is bad that the gazelle dies. Because that's what feeds the lion cub. And that's what Job's been doing. Job's been saying, it is bad that these things are happening to me. Because I understand the world. And if a well-run world, these things wouldn't happen. And God is saying, there is so much you don't understand about this world, and you're going to tell me how to run it. Uh, yeah, don't, don't go too far on the analogizing to humans part.
That's right. We we and we just want it to be over. I mean, when we give ourselves like even when we can get past that, because you're right, we we do expect to live in a sinless world that still has a bunch of sin. Even when we can mentally get past that, we get back to the how long problem, which is why are you waiting? We we get it. We get it. Evil is bad, and we are groaning for all things to be made new. We are crying out, come Lord Jesus. We get it. Fix this already. Now, I'll give you my uh, pastoral, personal opinion and charge on this. No, we aren't. We aren't crying out, come Lord Jesus. Not nearly enough. We are not groaning for the day of his coming. We are building castles in the sand at the expense of a focus on a kingdom that is eternal. And that's at least part of the reason that he's delaying his coming. Part of it is he's got more people he wants to save, which is a really amazing thought. Part of my suffering, part of why God's answer is not yet to the end of my suffering in this world is that God has more people he wants to save. People who would not know him and be with him in eternity if he came today. That's a different way of thinking about God's waiting. <laughs> a, a little more uh, gracious way. Renee, will you read 39, 19 through 25? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. There's a famous piece of literature that uses this passage as the inspiration for some creatures. Does it jump to anybody? No. It's Tolkien. It's the Dark Riders. These are terrifying war horses. These are the epitome of ultimate fear-inducing power. They run toward the battle. They see it and they smell. And they, like, just the, the picture you're supposed to have here is that these are, this is godlike language that is used to describe these creatures. They're not gods, but it, it's to create that weight of how dangerous these things are. And that they are, verse 21, they're itching to be let loose to battle. Ash says, here is a quasi-divine, supernatural, eerie, terrifying creature whose business is killing, who loves nothing more than blood and shrieks of battle. And yet, and we should be used to this by now, there is one who has given this creature its might. There is one who has clothed this creature with his warlike mane. There is one who has given him the nature and the strength to leap like the locust. God made the war horse. The war horse is not let loose until God lets him go. The war horse 
has a master. That is the hardest reality of Job that can be the most helpful is you can look at every single thing that happens and say that has a master and the master is God. The armies that came in and slaughtered your children has a master and the master is God. The storm that came and tore down your barns has a master and the master is God. The same is going to be true of the restoration, of the building, of the, all the good. That's, but we don't struggle with that as much. That's not Job's struggle. Oh, I can't believe God's behind all this blessing in my life. Nobody ever said that. <laughs> but this pain, this storm, this war horse, this ostrich, <laughs> we do struggle to say it has a master, and the master is God. And God is doing what he will do with these things. It is a well-run world. So then we end up back where we started. Uh, Lauren, can you read 26 through 30? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home. On the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away, his young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. So we're back to the predator-prey relationship. We get the picture of the hawk up high, uh, an invincible place that can't be reached. From that great height, he sees the prey. And then in between verses 29 and 30, he flies down, he pounces, kills the prey, carries it back uh, to his young and tears it from piece to piece to feed them. And, And God says, in case we were in any danger of forgetting, it is by the understanding of God that all this happens. It is by the command of God that all this happens. That's verses 26 and 27. Ash says, God does not permit predators to kill their prey. He commands them to do it. And so the Lord's defense of his wisdom, of his command, of his counsel, does not just include the beautiful. It doesn't just include the pictures of the Grand Canyons and the Rockies and the, the gazelle you know, running on the plain. It does include those. And God's defense of his own wisdom and counsel also includes that gazelle being torn to shreds by the lion. It also includes the stupid ostrich crusting its own egg. It also includes the war horse riding into battle, bringing death. And, and that's the picture that God paints for Job of how, of, of, of what justifies God's running of the universe rather than Job. That's God's case. Ash says, any plan for this world in which good will ultimately triumph must have within it a plan to overcome evil with good. Job could not expect a shallow and simple solution to the problem of evil. We should not be surprised if the counsel of God is inscrutable, 
and we must not challenge his counsel with the arrogance of human claims to superhuman knowledge. And that's what leads to the, God's conclusion of this speech, which is his closing challenge. Sally, can you read 40 verses 1 and 2? The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. The, the Hebrew word there is, is a noun. It's fault finder. Will a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Um, Job has thought too highly of himself. And in that thinking too highly of himself, he's made the suggestion earlier on, and God calls him out for it here, that he could give God some tips about how to run this world better. And what this, this is sort of where God puts his, his stamp of approval on what Elihu said. That Job's friends were wrong. Job was not suffering because of his sin. There was no hidden sin that was the cause of Job's suffering. Job's suffering exposed a hidden sin, which was the self-righteousness. This view of self, this arrogance, of which he does need to repent. This is a call to repentance. God patiently and graciously calls Job to a clearer understanding of his running of the universe. And he says at the end of it, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? God says in summary, this is Ash, I have made no mistake. I know exactly what I am doing in your life and in every detail of the government of the world. My counsel is perfect. I have got nothing wrong. How will you respond? That's, that's God's first speech. Um, lots of echoes of Elihu's speeches, but a fuller and clearer presentation because God sees the universe far clearer, more clearly, perfectly clearly uh, than his prophet does. So how does Job respond? God asked him for an answer. Right? God came out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel? Dress for action. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. God asks Job for an answer. And Job is going to make one admission and one statement, one factual declaration here. Uh, Dale, do you have, can you read uh, four and five? I'm sorry, three, four, and five. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, but I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. So let's, let's give Job some credit, but let's not give Job too much credit. Uh, Job doesn't say everything here that he ought to say. And the reason that I'm certain of that is because the very next verse is, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, God is not satisfied with Job's answer here. It's not that it's wrong. It's that it's incomplete. And Job's second answer at the end of God's second speech will be complete and God will be satisfied with that answer. 
So out of this, we can pull a few good things, but we also have to recognize that it's inadequate. I said he makes an admission. That's verse four. Behold, I am of small account. So he does admit that he's not as big as God. Okay. <laughs> right. That like, okay. Yes. And <laughs> where, where are we going to go from that? Um, that is the that is the theological truth that should drive Joe's response. The point of theology is that it changes what we think, feel, and do. Theology is words about God. Theology are truth, words about God. What's the point of having words about God? It's not that you win at Bible Jeopardy. It's that it changes what you think, feel, and do. So Job has the words about God. Behold, I am of small account. So what should you do with light, in light of that theology? Well, everything you say next should be about God. Because it's not just that you're of small account. It's that you're of small account in contrast to God. And so everything that should flow forth from Job's thinking, feeling, and doing at this point should be in light of the fact that God is big and Job is not. But that's not where Job is yet. Job gets the I'm not very big part of this, but he's not fully there on the greatness of God part of it. And so what does he say he's going to do in response to the fact that he is small? Nothing. He says, I'll make no more statements. <laughs> is the right answer to learning about the greatness of God? Nothing? No, it's worship, it's adoration, it, it's, it's silence in the sense that the scriptures talk about bowing down in silence before him, which is this worshipful adoration of his majesty. It's not literally, we're just not going to talk about it anymore. He says, I've spoken once and I will not answer twice and I will proceed no further. Okay, this conversation's over. The answer is, I'm small and we're done talking about it? That's Job's takeaway from this speech. Uh, there's a great story. I don't know if it's in the Christopher Ash Small book, but it's in his bigger commentary on Job. He talks about the, politi the British politician uh, Clement Attlee, and he won a, a landslide victory in the election of 1945, but the, the chairman of the Labor Party, uh, Professor Harold Lasky, kept writing to him every week to tell him how to do his job. Day after day, there's just these letters about what you're doing wrong and what you should be doing and you should do this instead of that. It's just this relentless onslaught of advice. And the guy had won this huge landslide. The people loved him. They loved what he was doing. But this Labor Party guy just thought he knew it all and would, would tell him what to do all the time. And so you have a, uh, the, one of the historical museums has a record of one of the letters that he finally wrote back in reply to this guy after getting all of this advice. And he says, um, uh, a period of silence from you would now be most welcome. And that is, that is in, a, in a funny way, that is part of what it's where Job should start. It's not where Job should finish. Job, thank you. This is uh, Ash writing. My dear Job, thank you for rear 20 chapters worth of letters telling me how I am to run the world. A period of silence from you would be most welcome. So that part is good. 
But that's not where it ends. That is not where God desires to end up in relation to his people. That's the critical part. God's not satisfied with merely putting you in your place. God wants you to be put in your place, that you're a creature, because of your awareness of him and his greatness and him coming close to you is what magnifies in your own mind how small you are because his greatness is what's magnified, not your puniness. That's not the angle God takes on this. Both are true. He's big and you're small. But his angle is not, let me continually remind you how small you are. That doesn't really help you. His angle is, let me continually remind you how big I am so that when you see the storm coming, so that when you see the war horse on the horizon, so that when you see the wild donkey that you can't restrain, you remember, my God's got this. Nothing is too difficult for you. That's what God is trying to get to. So the first speech forces Job to look around and admit that God really is God. All the created order is his. And yet there is still a problem. And it's that wonderful, terrible. It's a wonderful world. It's a terrible world. There's still evil in the world. And that's what the second speech is going is to unpack even more for Job. The real world in which we live has evil. How does that align with a well-run world? And then the result of that is going to deal with the final problem of the book, which is Job himself. Job's not there yet. Job gets that he's small. He doesn't get that God's big. That's not enough for God. That's not where God wants to leave you. 